0: You are listening to the tape deck That seattle weekly podcast comes out every friday check out the website at tapedeckpodcast.com we do daily album reviews we do blogs we do all sorts of things it's all about music um for your listening pleasure my name is rob mora and today uh we have samuel bell uh he's a producer he's an amazing producer actually Uh, he's been doing it for 20 years and, and he's such a great guy sam thanks for being on the podcast my pleasure. Yeah. God, when did we meet each other? It was like last year, right?
1: Yeah, well, I think it was before that. I. It's kind of interesting because I started coming in here. When we were
0: opening a little later.
1: Yeah. I think. Or closing yeah, a little later. Yeah, I, I was, it was weird because when I first moved to Columbia City, I was, I was learning to code, like the early kind of part of me learning to code. Yeah. So I was just trying to go out of my house <laughs> to be somewhere else, not be in my sort of front room. Yeah. Just, you know. I like working from home, but there's part of me that's like, I need to get out. Yeah. <laughs> As you do. You know? Yeah, it and starts to sort of drive me insane.
0: Yeah, I feel the same way. And it's, that's what makes this particular place that I work at a bastion for it. You know, Now that I'm moving to Kuala or Queen Anne, I have to figure out where all the cafes are. And thank God, because uh, where my boyfriend was living, the only cafe that's available was, they closed at four Oh, really? 4 p.m. That's crazy. Yeah. You're going
1: to have plenty of choice over there. Yeah,
0: exactly. There's Cafe Central. Yeah. So I don't know if you've been listening to anything great, but I just recently listened to um, Dizzy Rascal's debut. Oh, yeah. Boy in the Corner, which I discovered when I was a freshman in college. And and the the way I discovered him was he was doing something called The Electric Prom, which is like a series of, you know, it's like for people who don't know, it's a series of like, live concerts where artists will sort of reimagine their material yep. and in this case it was Dizzy Rascal doing a reimagining of some of his material but he hired a whole orchestra and guitarists and bassists and back when I was in high school I was very into Guthrie Govan and a lot of the you know the guitar heroes of the day and what I would just obsessively search for his material on YouTube, yeah. just like anything I could find of this guy. And I saw him perform. He performed with Dizzy Rascal right, uh, on stage. And so I was like, oh, my God, he did the Bulls on Parade solo like crazy. But that was my first exposure to Dizzy Rascal. And then it was later when I started to get interested in music and critically, yeah. you know, that I saw that he released this album. I was like, oh, my God, like he was actually like a le- still kind of is I guess, but like he 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 received so many accolades for that album, and it's such a good record.
1: It man. is, yeah. I don't know when that massive hit Bonkers what was Bonkers
0: it? was tongue in cheek, which was, was late two like, thousands. That was late two sure. thousands, yeah. Yeah.
1: So bon- that like the the way that conversation about uh, grime. I don't know, it just, it always, I'm fascinated by loads of different styles of music, even right, though right, predominantly yeah. my career has been like guitar music recording. Or, you know, if someone's like, what kind of music do you do? It's like, kind of guitar music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But when I, so when I, I was actually, really weirdly, I was working on an acoustic project with someone the other day that wanted me to put some acoustic baffles in their control room of their house. Interesting. And uh, I was like, yeah, I, I can measure the acoustics and we can build these things. Mm. And he started to talk to me about, um, who was the artist? We somehow got, oh yeah, he was talking about my, how I got into music because mm-hmm. he had these old samplers in his rack. Right. Okay, it's coming back to me now. <laughs> so he, he had these uh, early samplers called uh, Akai S2000. Yeah, Okay. And you had to, I learned on them. When I, mm. when I went to college, it was like tape editing, ADAP machines that were like video cassette. The horror. Digital multi-tracks. <laughs> yeah. And uh, sampling on those things. And you had to just turn this number wheel to find the transient point. Yeah. But anyway, what was awesome is that when I was at college, um, I got a job in the studio with, and I was just like making tea and stuff. Mm-hmm. But these four guys that owned the studio all made completely different styles of music. One made U.K. garage. one was a really prominent uh, drum and bass artist. One made house and kind of breakbeat stuff, and the other guy was like a house DJ kind right. of person. They were all really prominent in like the Brighton and London scenes. When was this?: This is like. 98. Okay, so this was pre-Grime. Like, maybe Well, this like... is where Grime came from. Yeah. So out of like UK Garage, Jungle, Drum and Bass, Grime evolved out of that. Yeah. And at the time, just like pre uh, dizzy Rascal, there was a guy called Roots Maneuver who got huge. That was like UK hip-hop kind okay. of thing. Yeah. But all of that stuff is all kind of mangled together. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of it is separated by tempo.
0: Yeah, really, yeah. So Grime is super fast paced usually, yeah. right? Like 170, 180,
1: yeah. P.M. And drum and bass was kind of like, there were people like this guy Ronnie Size that was a bit slower, but most of it was around like 175. Right. And very particular, you know, they were using lots of the same drum loops. So all my early experiences, that was like five years of my early engineering experiences, If you look at my CV and it's like, you know, R.E.M. and people like that who I was a massive fan of pre-studio days and then further on, all my early experiences in the studio were working with people making electronic music. Yeah. Um, So when I had to apply that to my band kind of thing, I kind of knew quite a lot about it. Right. And also what was really amazing about that learning uh, period was that the studio wasn't it wasn't like, oh, I wanna to go to the studio and I'm gonna pay per day for studio time. The people that went there paid like a monthly membership and they got an amount of time and each slot was five hours. Ah. So there would be someone from ten till three, someone from three till eight, and then someone from eight till one AM. Okay. So I would be there all the time helping people like fix the sample of what it won't working or oh the synth isn't doing what it should do, how do I get this sound out of it? Yeah but every five hours it was someone different. So I just learned how to work with people like immediately.
0: Wow, okay.
1: So that was really amazing. Man, that's so
0: fortunate, you know? I remember uh, when I was starting to get into music and, and wanting to maybe pursue something like that when I was producing my own records amateurishly and was looking at maybe getting like an internship or something at a studio. Man, those opportunities are just so rare, around here anyway, you like, know? Yeah. like. There are a few studios that offer internships, and, and essentially that's what they're making tea, you know, like, you know, well, doing the banal
1: stuff. I would just know. say, like, it's if you think it's rare in Seattle, like where I'm from, like, Portsmouth, there is no music scene, or there was no music scene. Right. Uh, Brighton, there's a really strong music scene, but Chichester was far enough away that it wasn't tapping into any kind of scene. It just was lucky that this place existed. Right. And, you know, like we had this big room in that studio and at a certain point I was like, we could record bands up there. Yeah. So, I, like, I met one of my friends, like, when I was on social media, hit me up one day and he's like, can you remember recording us with just all SM58s? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And he's like, well I listened to it the other day and it sounds pretty good. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I
0: mean, you know, it's a good microphone. I think yeah, it's, just, uh, to all it's of it. just
1: funny, like at, you know. At the time, I was just like, "Well, why don't we just buy like a bunch of a bunch of those and try <laughs> it out?" And oh my people god! People paid for it. <laughs> so, what
0: made you want to get into the studio? Like, did, a lot of people decide at some point that they really just want to sort of just go gun ho and pursue it. You know, was there any particular impetus that made you want to do it?
1: Well, you know, y- you know, like most people, I was when I was. Uh, well, I think to avoid just doing the general silly stuff that you do as a teenager, I was just sat in my guitar, sat in my bedroom playing guitar and learning how to play guitar. Right. Um, and I was like, oh, I want to be a session guitarist. And then I started going to uh, Performing Arts College right. for music. Okay. And. I really quickly realized that I didn't want any part of that because it was just so strict in its regimented, like this is the way everything is done.
0: Yeah, and honestly, really when it comes down to it, I think there are institutions like that that do sort of, they proliferate that that line of thinking that's just so very not creative. You know, Yeah,
1: I I found it very non-creative. Yeah. But at the same time, while I was there, I vividly remember this guy that was on the course with me, but he kind of, they had lots of open evenings. Yeah. And he was like, you should come and check out the studio. And I walked in one day and he was, showed me how to break down a, a mixing desk, which is like how I work with people now in problem solving. It's like, well, you don't have to look at it like a mixing desk in its entirety. You can just be like, I'm just going to learn what this knob does. Okay. And then once I know what that knob does, I know what those 80 knobs do. <laughs> and cool. It, like that kind of got me into a, oh, this is an actual career that I could, you know, is technical, so I'm quite technical. And I could, it could actually be something that I could earn money and still be working in music. Wow. Interesting. So that was like the, the seed of it.
0: Okay. So you decided, did you pursue that, um, uh, the studio was in, uh, where was the town, Portsmouth?
1: Yeah, I went to study. It was, uh, what was it called? South Downs College, which was just, I'm from a place called Drayton, which is just outside of Portsmouth. And it was like the other side of the hill.
0: Okay, I see. All right. So you, was this during college? Was this after college that you decided to
1: pursue it? It was like, I was on this program and I walked into a recording studio and then I went home to my mum and dad and I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> I'm doing this. Yeah. So then I went to a place called Salisbury College, which is now called yeah. Wiltshire College. Yep, yes. And I had to get the train over there every day. It took like an hour. Right. Um, but that was, at the time it was really cool because was a, there was all these SAE programs and thing, which is kind of like full sale that yeah. you have here. Really expensive but really intensive. But this was just a, like a sixth form college. At, but it was, you know, we did like tape editing, radio program editing, microphone placement, acoustics. It was like, it was amazing. And it was, re- I got a thing called a BTEC national diploma. And that was kind of set up at the time as a educational process for people that weren't necessarily academically Wired. So instead of writing papers about things, you just did things. Oh, that sounds so nice. And you got assessed on the skill. Maybe. Oh,
0: God. I'm sure there are programs like that in America, but I can't think of them off the top of my head.
1: Yeah, I'm sure they are. They, I mean, there were a lot of things like there were uh, MVQ programs and uh, City and Guild programs that were these very things where if you wanted to be a plumber... and I know Oh, yeah, like a trade. Be, yeah. But except the trade was to do recording. Exactly, right. and you got assessed on the, so if you're a carpenter, say, it's like, oh, we, you're going to hang a door today, and yeah. we're going to assess you on it. Okay. Rather than, you're going to write about how to hang a door. Cool. So oh, my was, God. It was awesome. Sweet. So you, uh, what was the first
0: act that you remember recording that was like, I mean, I know you've probably recorded, like, I'm assuming when you get gigs like that, you're just like, I'll record anybody, you know, whoever wants to yeah. come into the studio. That's basically you know? what it was, yeah. Yeah, you just had people come in, and then or yeah, you, would, we, you would pitch yourself and be like, I record stuff, you know?
1: Uh, it was more just pitching the studio. Right, because you worked for the studio. Yeah, Okay. but we, you know, I'd learned so much in that period, um, that it was, it was, in the morning we had like, people singing karaoke tracks. Mm. And you know, at the time I remember thinking, I do not want to be doing this. <laughs> but then in hindsight, you just learn so much about microphone technique and if this person gets this close it sounds like that if they get that close yeah, you know all of these things that i wasn't able to work in a really like a lot of people go to there's a really famous college in guildford and then they they have this track into like abbey road and air studios yeah places like that yeah so if you if you get that opportunity you'll make tea for a long time but you instead of doing things you're watching the masters do you know right carry out their skills so you have a And that's important in some right? Yeah. Yeah. Your your learning path is quicker though because you see them doing it. Okay. Cool. I had to like teach myself. Yeah. And you know, like I discovered until I found out that everyone was doing it, I like put a microphone in front of a drum kit and compressed it. And I was like, "Well, that sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. And then I started reading about it. I was like, I I like oh, there. shit. <laughs> I was going to trademark this. I, f- I thought i it. <laughs> the bell technique. In, yeah. <laughs> I literally thought I'd invented it. Oh, <laughs> God,
0: <laughs> man. It happens,
1: you know. Well, it's cool. I mean, the thing is, just like, in my mind, I did invent it. That's how yeah, things are invented. pretty
0: much. It, there's a term called outsider music, which is music that's made outside of any particular scene or... You know, essentially, when anyone wants to start making music and all they want to do is just convey the sounds in their head, you know, uh, divorced of any type of genre or music or whatnot, at least that they have in mind, they'll do that. And then even if it matches a specific genre, they'll call it outsider music. I know that there are probably just tons and tons of people who were doing things and they were thinking in their heads, like, oh, this is the first first time I've ever done this, or the first time it's ever been done. And then they realize that, you know everything's been done before you know yeah i mean it's
1: yeah it's just the way you look at those things really
0: yeah pretty much i feel like i don't know um it's a crucial step to 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 learning how to be creative in that creative process to know and and sort of understand that everything's been done in some regard like i don't know it's been who knows how long since like rock became a thing for like all these different genres you know at some point with all the artists that are doing whatever they're doing you know you sort of have to understand that if you're trying to do something new that it's been done before and you just sort of have to you can't really pride yourself on it you sort of have to throw it into the mix and just be like oh yeah there's a humility in that you know yeah, i think it's super I, important
1: I, I, I agree i think it is i think that's a, actually a, a popular trap that i think a lot of people when they become quite prominent they can find themselves in this kind of a lot of people talk about not repeating themselves and, you know, artists talk about that. And the it's cliche. Like, yeah. yeah, it's like, you know, so what? I mean... Yeah. <laughs>
0: Screw it, it sounds good.
1: Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, it's it's like you your job is to kind of make music that people want to listen to. Yeah, exactly, you know? I know that, you know, that doesn't sound very, like, artistic, and but it, that's you became prominent because people bought what you made exactly
0: yeah the 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 originality of a piece of music or a creation the individuality a lot of the times doesn't mean it's going to be popular or sell like that's not the sole deciding factor you know like obviously if you're in the popular sphere and you're doing something that no one else is doing yeah that's a reason for people to listen to your music you know but oftentimes it is the case that if you follow a trend or whatever it is that's going on chances are there is going to be a greater degree of success in that regard
1: absolutely you know? I think that actually goes back to the, you know the previous point of uh when people become prominent generally the people that that I know that have become prominent they weren't necessarily they were using things to be inspired, but they created something mm-hmm. and then once they 've created the thing, then it feels psychologically like then you are actually just reaping the rewards of the idea so. Yeah, if you're a creative person, you're always trying to be creative. So once you've done it, if you would continue to do the same thing, it kind of feels a bit dirty.
0: A little bit, yeah. There's a, fa- you know about Fleetwood Macs, uh, how they got famous and they did Tusk. Yeah, remember you know that story. So, Lindsey Buckingham, obviously the type of person that just, he wanted to be like he understood that his first his record was just gangbusters. Everyone was listening to it. But he, that artistic side of him was just sort of eating at him, and he didn't want to repeat himself. So he had a little bit of a mental breakdown during it. Like He purposefully tried to make it so nothing that he did was attempting to be done before. And that went as far as uh, he would just walk into the studio one day and then just be like, he would just tell the engineer, all of these knobs need to just be turned all the way to the right, and we're just going to record it like that or he would record his vocal with his mic on the ground and he would do push-ups, like in the push-up position and record yeah, yeah. that way. Um, there was a, a, he just filled the whole studio with like animal skulls and like, yeah. you know, just, which seems like misguided inspiration, but you know, that, that, that's the impetus of someone who is trying as hard as they can not to repeat themselves while also making something that people would want to listen to.
1: Well, yeah, and no. also, you know, not to get into some kind of like psychological Analysis of that <laughs> that process, but you know, once you once it's very it's very tricky because I think once you you know let's, I don't want to veer too off too far into that world, but I think it's kind of cool to apply it to that that analogy. Yeah, it, when when if you were to become famous, you know, you have these parts of yourself that are part of you and they drive you to get where you're going, right? If you are then put on a pedestal where no one holds you accountable and everyone just tells you you're awesome, all of the kind of sides to you that are like narcissistic, for example, become exaggerated. Yeah, pretty much. And, <laughs> and then you, no one's going to tell you no at that point. Pretty much, yeah.
0: And then, uh, and then you're Fergie and you decide to do a Super Bowl performance that's in four four time with a vocal that no one thought was a good idea, except the people who apparently she surrounded herself with. Yeah. You know. I've said it before on the podcast, but I think it is, sometimes it is like, it's valid in a lot of situations. Success, this is for people who like, are just thinking of like, I want success. Like when is success gonna happen? Success is oftentimes a lot harder than failure because a lot of the times when you hit that point where you succeed arbitrarily, whatever it is you're doing, you're not really doing anything different. Yeah. You know, like, so you don't know what it is that you've done right. And so you don't really know how to repeat it, or like how to. Well, what did I do? You know. And I think it freaks a lot of people out. You're I like, think it's really hard. Yeah.
1: And also, know? I think one of the, one of the things I talk to people that I know that are you know trying to be successful is that uh, you know if you haven't got yourself together in a way that um, is kind of healthy, and you just understand that what you're doing now is kind of is it. Mm-hmm like it's not gonna change. So if you try and think to yourself like, we all do this as humans where it's like, if if I get myself to this point, everything's gonna be okay. Yeah. That's kind of like the thing of trying to get successful, like just narrowing it down into the music industry. If you're trying to reach the goal, if you're unhealthy in that way, like let's, if you reach the goal, I don't know what's gonna happen. Yeah. Because things can go south.
0: Yeah, you're just like, eventually, It'll be settled once it happens. You know, yeah. like you sort of put faith in that. Fleetwood Mac is
1: the perfect example. Yeah, you because know. you know, like a lot of people have said this over the years that, you know, making rumors <laughs> is kind of you wouldn't wish it on anyone in a certain <laughs> way because it's like once you've done that, there's only downwards. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I, can, it's all. It was all fallout. You're back not going to. S- you're not going to sell that many records ever again.
0: Pretty much, yeah, and. And they know that for a fact. Yeah. You know? Um, but let's get back to you for a second. You um, You're you live in Seattle right now, right? How long have you lived in Seattle? Uh, two years, I guess, now. Just two years? I think so, yeah. Interesting. Or maybe
1: two and a half years.
0: So the majority, having produced for maybe 20 years, the majority of your recordings have been in, in well, the UK?
1: Yeah. For, I guess, like 10 years of that and then... Well, so where do we pick off of the lineage? Do you want to do some more historic timeline of what my career yeah. went, went like? Because yeah. you were talking about so one was, interesting part of yeah, go on. Um, when I was working at actually, that's it, the, <laughs> we're not actually jumping around because we can tie this together quite yeah. quite well right um, when. So I worked in this really small studio and then I was like, if if my career is going to go forward I need to work in a real studio. Yeah. Um, And I got a job in this residential studio called Jacob's which was a really big farm house converted into two studios and bands used to come and live there. So I got a job and I was the engineer there. But I I already had, like, five years under my belt of experience, so people very quickly started asking me to engineer while I was assisting people. Excellent. That's ideal, right? It was great. And in that period of time, I learned a ton, but I encountered some people as their careers were, like, really taking off. Ooh, spill the tea. Well, like, uh, Jack Knife Lee, who I ended up working with for, I don't know, like, 12 years or something like that. Wow. Um, so I met him, and I worked with Paul Epworth. Wow, seriously? He, yeah, he was, he was great as well. And a guy called Chris Sheldon, who did some early Foo Fighters stuff. And, Interesting. Uh, that band Biffy Clyro. I do not know that band. They're, they're very... Their success is very difficult to kind <laughs> of work out because they're massive... Where I'm from
0: okay, but not really in America,
1: not really in America, like they played Neptune uh just before Christmas, really, but they 'll play like the O2 arena holy shit <laughs> where i'm from the, the disparity yeah, oh my God,
0: it just happens, I guess you know biff what do they call Biffy Clydro
1: Biffy Clyro Biffy Clyro okay. they're an awesome band, yeah, I
0: also check them out yeah they've, now that... they've made a lot of
1: different types of music, but they're just they 're just massive
0: any artists you remember working with that you would, a specifically great time recording or people that came off really well
1: I haven't know. actually I haven't had I wouldn't say I've had any terrible experiences I've had some um, intense experiences, the greatest experiences I think I had were working with REM. Oh that's right I saw in your discography that you, so you actually worked
0: with them on, what was that album specifically? Was it, it was, it was like a full record, like a full album release or was Two. it a compilation? Two. Holy shit yeah. So you actually worked with the band. That's cool, considering you really liked them growing up.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. I, like the the first record I ever bought was uh, "Monster" by REM. Mm. And one of my teachers would play "Green" and "Out of Time" like constantly wow. when I was at school. God, wish fulfillment. It was. That's so cool. It was. Yeah. It was. It was awesome. It was like one of those things where you're like, oh, these people, <laughs> <laughs> these monsters. It, so, was, uh, it was. Yeah. It was. Uh, the, and just because we worked in lots of different cities, yeah, and uh, it was a bat. You know, they're very like this is what we, this is the noise we make. And you know, I was quite, when the first, the first two records, there was another guy called Tom McFall that was uh, recording them, mm-hmm. and I was doing lots of pro tools and editing stuff. That's how I started working with Jackknife. Yeah, and then I kind of evolved into his recording engineer. Um, and I think I I may have recorded the two last ever REM songs, unless they do some more stuff. Wow! Which for now. Were, for now, yeah. We well We have to kill them all <laughs> in order to keep that. Yeah, no, I <laughs> think, <laughs> think I, to do I would it. I would be glad not to record <laughs> the last REM songs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they that was they those last two songs were on their greatest hits, and that was that i think those two songs were some of my favorite recordings because we were really trying to get like a glenn campbell kind of feel on one of them It's a really great video and i just love the song um and we kind of recorded it in a weird way like they couldn't all get together so we were kind of recorded some backing track stuff and then bill the drummer did some stuff in LA and then we went to Athens. Right. Um, but you know, like previous records, we recorded in Vancouver and Ireland and New Orleans. Mm. And just going to those places is, for, you know, coming from Portsmouth, where I'm from, and like moving around and traveling to Berlin and all these different places to, to work was just incredible. Yeah. So oh come, my God,
0: part, part and parcel. You know, with the package of, of of being in a position where you're just recording everywhere, just the sights—it's almost like being a touring musician a little bit, but yeah, like maybe not as because the fact that you're going to to studios, and I'm assuming the accommodations were a whole lot better than like a van.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, it was you know staying in like five star hotels. All oh the time. my god,
0: <laughs> it was pretty pretty awesome. Uh, so, tell me about Jackknife. Um, because I'm only only briefly familiar with his work, but I recognize the name.
1: Have you heard I mean, any uh, of the, like Have you heard stuff that he's produced and stuff that he's made as a musician? He's done a well. I'm out less aware of his musician musical output right. uh, than
0: his production. I know he's done Block Party, and I know he's done. Yeah. Um, uh, he did some
1: Snow Patrol as well. I think. Yeah. Um, well, let's um, let's. Uh, talk about that and then circle back to like, okay. I, there was a specific year in time that I just, my career kind of went like that. Oh, interesting. And it was like kind of mind blowing. I don't want to know But her. yeah, okay. uh, Jackknife is awesome. Like he, I really gelled with him early on because he was, a lot of the music that he made, he was in a band called Compulsion. I've heard of them, okay. Yeah, and they did pretty, they were kind of signed as a a, a UK answer to Nirvana at the time.
0: Yes, you do. Yeah. Back then.
1: There was another band called Bush. Have you heard of Bush? Bush
0: oh, Bush. Of course we've heard of Bush. Yeah. Well <laughs> so
1: Bush Bush and Compulsion were kind of signed around the same time to be like the answer to Like the to Like that. the pre-post grunge, almost a little bit. Basically, yeah. Like yeah. It, But that was kind of what the UK was doing against there was a, a whole other scene that wasn't Britpop that was people playing kind of heavier guitar music. Yep, yep. Um, he was in Compulsion. Compulsion was supposed to be the band that like, did everything, but Bush ended up being the band that became I see, it. okay. But then he was into a lot of electronic music and started making kind of stuff that was like breakbeat, kind of like around the Fatboy Slim kind of time. Yep. Um, so I actually kind of knew a little bit about his music without knowing what his name was. And then you know, just got to know him, and we just connected on lots of, you know, he was into using computers with bands, and made a record with Kasabian. Oh yeah. And just you know, we just really gelled straight away. Mm. Um, and so I was working with him and Tom, who was engineering for him, on Snow Patrol. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of just continued from there, and I, you know, we just worked together ever since. Dude, that's fantastic. But so I, what was cool about the Snow Patrol connection is that I worked with him on an American band called Vox, and I was assisting him and this guy called Dan Swift, who was engineering for him at the time, who weirdly, this is a weird story that's just jumped into my brain, Okay. so I'm from this like place called Drayton, which is outside of Portsmouth, Yeah. and Dan Swift and I were born on the same street. In this town interesting, whoa, holy shit <laughs> and jackknife and um, another guy that produced REM um, grew up on the same street in Dublin <laughs> oh my
0: god, like the the coincidences, oh my Jesus
1: yeah it 's a bit weird, yeah, but anyway, so when I met Garrett, i uh, I was working with this band, Vox, and then I, I was just burnt out working in this residential recording studio, so I emailed everyone that I'd worked with, yeah. so like I emailed Paul and I emailed Chris and Garrett, and he needed someone to do some editing on Snow Patrol. Okay. And I remember vividly thinking about things that I'd worked on in my career, and I was like, I'd really like to work on something that you know, like got played on the radio. Or, you know, know, it's always good to have, like, an attainable goal. A goal, yeah. And uh, I remember I left this studio and went and worked with Garrett on... He had a cassette recording of this song called Chasing Cars that was a Snow Patrol song. Right. And when I was working on this Vox record, which is about a year before we did Snow Patrol, he had this, like, demo recording of that song. Mm -hmm. And that song just ended up, once it had been recorded, it was... That record was the biggest selling record of that year in the UK, or in the UK. Wow, yeah. it just took off. It was mad. It was <sighs> went from like never hearing anything you do do anything to oh my god, it's on the radio again, yeah, and again. And I again. have
0: that that goal is fulfilled, and a lot sooner than you think it would. Yeah, I mean, that's it's, crazy. I
1: went to see Snow Patrol, uh CenturyLink a couple of months ago because they were supporting Ed Sheeran. Yeah, and they played that song, and the whole you know the 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 crowd went mad and you're just like
0: I worked on that
1: what is I can remember him singing it Like, oh my re- god it's, it's, it's just I'm geeking out over here I'm so sorry well, it, <laughs> I, it's funny because when you're doing these things you don't really think about it because it's just part of your job yeah but then went to look back at it and be like, I remember him writing the, the stuff on a mm-hmm. piece of paper and yeah. then singing it.
0: The meaning comes retrospectively. Yeah. You know? but, but back then it's just mundane. Just like, oh, you know, I'm recording you and doing it. It's know? amazing. Yeah. It's amazing
1: memories to have and to experience those things. That's so cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah. Oh, my God. So you've
0: worked with Snow Patrol. you worked with Block Party. I saw you worked with Taylor Swift on uh, Red. Mm. What exactly did you do there? Was it, it says orchestral recordings.
1: I recorded everything on the song apart from her voice. Oh, really? Yeah, we we recorded. We did record an orchestra, but uh, Bill Rieflin from REM played drums on that.
0: Oh, I did not know that.
1: Yeah, he he played drums. That was kind of around the same time as the last REM stuff. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we we recorded a lot of music at a studio called Ocean. We were doing it. We were making a Robbie Williams record and a two-door cinema club record, all kind at of the same ah, time. Ah, yes. And Bill yeah. came and played on the Robbie Williams stuff and the Taylor Swift stuff. Cool. Um, and then yeah, we recorded an orchestra. But yeah, strangely, I think she she'd written the song with Gary and she sung it with Gary as like a a demo. Yeah. And then you know they were just working on it and it was sounding good and then I think Garrett sent her a mix and then she couldn't for some reason come back and then they were like well it sounds awesome anyway so let's just keep the the demo demo one that you did. I mean that stuff works out strangely more often than not.
0: I can imagine yeah if you've got an idea for a song and you you have the ability or the gumption to do it first take you know if it's
1: for a demo there's always just a certain like atmosphere that people Exactly.
0: Yeah. Speaking of which, um, it has been almost cliche that like you sort of want to set up a studio in a way that there's like a, like a feng shui, like an ambience, something like that. How, do you prescribe to that idea? Like, is that is that important to getting specific vocal takes? It's like the area that you're recording in like has I a think certain. I everyone.
1: Energy. Yeah. Possibly. Um, yeah. No. No. Definitely. I think. Um, I've learned a lot working with. With Garrett on that front, and other experiences, and I think he learned a lot from working with you too. And also, and you two, not me. Uh, the band, you two. Okay, yeah. cool. And you two. <laughs> yeah, me. Um, I wish. And also, like REM. My one of the things I did do, I recorded all of uh, Michael's vocals on those records because you just wanted it to be kind of like not a lot of people around. Right. And I got on with him really well. Um, and I think taking the you know if you can just give someone a microphone and they can just feel like they're just doing they're just singing like they would in their front room or a writing environment that's it
0: that's yeah. that's a big key but that's hard to do for some people
1: too. It, well I think it's I do it all the time and I think <laughs> that I don't I don't let my engineering ego try and take over from the fact that my job is actually to record the person, mm-hmm. it's not to be an awesome engineer. Like the, the, This is where things get a little bit lost in recording studios, I think how I've been successful is not getting too bogged down with, oh, the f-, you know... My,
0: not being an Albini, in other words, someone who's just like, we need to do it this way.
1: Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a big fan of him as well. Yeah. Um, but. I just, I think more, actually, I would say someone like him, I like his approach more than other people that are trying to make everything so clean and pristine and, you know, the yes. scientific method of recording. Which is
0: funny because a lot of the times when I see, when I hear a production, specifically like a modern rock production, you can immediately tell that that's what happened. Yeah. Like just because of the way it sounds, it can sound very sterile and yeah. like, I don't see why that isn't ideal for a lot of people. I ju-
1: actually a story that's coming to mind for me is that I remember being in a studio with someone one time and they were talking about how they were EQing the singer while they were testing the mic and stuff and I was just I was just looking at them, I was thinking, I've never done that and I can never imagine like getting someone to repeatedly sing a line while I dial in an EQ. It's like no. That's <laughs> so stupid. You're missing like vocal performances. Yeah. And I I mixed something for someone the other day and they were like yeah, we couldn't finish it because the the singer burnt out his voice. And I was... I wonder why. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> then I was like, so how did you record? And he was telling me all these tests and stuff. And I was like, no wonder he burnt out his voice. Just give him a SM57 and just Let do him it. do it, yeah. Oh, my God. I, I think that's what one of the things that I've learned and one of my approaches is just to kind of not allow my... Sometimes the education of what a really good recording is is not the way you actually make a good recording. A good mm-hmm. recording is like, when someone's like, how did you get that snare sound? What mic pre's did you use? What mic did you use? And I'm just like, well, I used this drum key, and I turned it until the drum sounded good. <laughs> it's simple, not- simplicity. Yeah,
0: it's not rocket science. <laughs> not to yeah. be too
1: much of an idiot about. Yeah.
0: <laughs> People can get very gear-heady about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm
1: definitely like, not a gearhead.
0: Yeah. It's funny too is this is just my personal bias, Like, but the people that I've interacted with. Yeah. Um, and this, this does run the gamut from the very, very few amount of producers that I know and a lot of the musicians that I've worked with, the people that really obsess over their recording equipment and the specific equipment they're getting and they just collect gear and whatnot S- a lot of the times, it tends to, the music tends to get lost in that, you know? They're just yeah. like, it's, it's almost an assumption where like, well, if we have good equipment, how can we make bad music?
1: It'll just come. Yeah, well, know? that's actually a good, you know, way to have the... People always talk about the, you know, the two big mixing desks of Neve and API, uh, Neve and SSL. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking API because I was like, well, I don't really like using APIs. <laughs> but if you go back through history and sort of, start thinking about all the records that you love the sound of. Even though those are amazing sounding pieces of equipment, you'd be hard pushed to find something that was recorded on one of those desks. Like right. if you think about Led Zeppelin or the Stones or Elvis or the Beatles, they're all like using Tridents and Helios and um EMI consoles mm-hmm. and whatever they've got at Sun Studios, some weird bespoke thing. Yep. I mean, like, the whole concept of it's like, well, this is the way we do it. It's just marketing. Pretty much, yeah. And they are, it is it, great equipment, but at the same time, it's like, well, do your research and go back and see how the stuff Exactly, yeah. What, what made, I'm,
0: I'm unaware of this, but I'm trying to figure out what made Neve so popular. Was it Thriller? then a thriller was Don't produced on a on a on a new console was it i believe in fact the band phoenix when they were making their follow-up to, to wolfgang Amadeus phoenix their big breakout record bought that console oh, really? the one that Thriller was made on to make bankrupt guess what wasn't as good <laughs> Not, yeah. it was so overproduced it was crazy there you go yeah you know? <laughs> so it is the gear just the gear is gear but gear
1: is just gear you know? It is just game, I mean, and all of this stuff is so subjective. Yeah, like the story uh, is it is it Bruce Swedian? I never know how to pronounce his name, but he was Quincy Jones's engineer. Like when they were doing Thriller, and uh, you know all of those seminal records. Interesting. And there's a there's a is Beat It on Thriller? Is what Beat, Beat It? Beat It? Yes. So I think it's I think there's a story around Beat It where he was working on a mix and he'd like spent a day on it and he was like come down to the studio and check it out so they come down and i think you know Quincy Jones or Michael Jackson they just like just do these changes and put it down and they put it to they put it to um half inch and then the next day they're like let's work on it some more so they keep working on it. And I think they go up to like 80 passes of this perf- perfecting the mix, right? Trying to get it to be the most perfect mix of this awesome song. Yep. And then they get to the point where they're like, right, we're going to sign off on it. And uh, Quincy Jones says to, to Bruce Swede, can we just listen to like the second one you did? And, <laughs> and he's like, uh, you're joking me. Like <laughs> We, we spent all this did time. did all of this so then he's like yeah sure and then he's he said like he played it and everyone in the room was just like that's the one (laughs) (laughs) and that's actually what they used wow so it kind of proves that whole thing of like the chase of perfection like i don't know instinct is huge yeah you can try but that way lies madness
0: yeah you know that's see that's what i think is is the big message you know like you can you can try as hard as you can, but your perfectionist spirit is just going to end up like you're just starting to trust your gut at some
1: point. Yeah, you kind of, you kind of have to. I mean, I've, I've been really getting into, you know, obviously we're talking about, I'm studying psychology now. And Carl Jung is a really, just a force of creative thinking in the psychology world. And old. one of his famous quotes is something along the lines of, uh, complete is better than perfect. And mm. the thought process is that you, know, you can't refine anything until it's complete.
0: See, I took psychology when I was in college and I had never once heard that quote. That would have fix, fixed so many of my issues
1: I think back then. It works for so many. Because uh, I mean, the, the other thing about refining and trying to make something so perfect is that once you have, you know, like, I don't know if you want to talk about this stuff or not, but I do luthier stuff, so I work on guitars. Yeah. Um, as well as making records and blah. But once you train your eye to a certain degree in that, which is a bit different to making records, but it's still kind of the same skills in some way, mm-hmm. your eye becomes so more, so higher adapted and focused to what you're looking for that someone else, like a client, will never see stuff that you can see or imperfections in the finish or any of that kind of stuff Yeah. so when you're making art or you're making music you come into that world of self serving perfection to serve your own skill because your talent has taken you to another level of perception mm-hmm. I guess is the word Yeah. but no one else can hear those things.
0: Yeah, it's like the same thing with performing a song and you do it and you mess up a part and you're like ugh you can hear it and then you talk to someone and you're like how was it and they're like it was great there were no issues because they, they haven't heard it you know Yeah, like it's so easy to be so critical of your own work when you know specifically what needs to be done and if something isn't done to what, it, what you have in your mind like it, it registers to you as an error but the other person the people that are witnessing it or the people that are experiencing it can't see that intention clearly like you can Yeah, you know so they have nothing to go on Absolutely. You know?
1: If you take that into a live show environment, it's, it can be down to... I've had so many conversations with singers or guitar players or whoever over the years where they felt like they, it was a bad version of their show. Yeah. But in actual fact, it could be something that you're hearing out of the monitors versus what's coming out of the front of house system. Exactly. There's so many things that are like out of your sphere of... Control And
0: that's something that a professional musician, I guess, would just sort of have to give up, you know, just sort of be like, I'm only in control of as much as I can, especially if you're doing big live shows in your monitors and all that. There's so much that can go wrong.
1: That's why, you know, one of the most important people in, in a big live show is whoever's mixing monitors for people. Mm-hmm. Have you ever done that? No. Oh, <laughs> stress off the shoulders. I, would, I would do it. I, I actually, a few years ago, I started to think, just because I'd made studio records for a long time, I started to think about getting into live sound because I actually like the excitement of live recording where mm-hmm. it's, you have one opportunity. Chemistry I love some chemistry. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I love, you know, recording orchestras is amazing because it's like you only have a few chances. Of course, yeah. Um, and it's costing like a load of money. So it's always <laughs> like, oh. Um, but You're I kind of love shit, it. Right? It's definite like adrenaline rush. Yeah.
0: It could be, I see the appeal in it, you know? But then if you fuck up, man, a lot of fingers get pointed, you know? Yeah. And it's
1: like, it's, you can only do so much, you know? I remember, yeah, I mean, I can tell you a lot of stories about that, but I think the uh, one of the most awesome ones is we did some string stuff on one of Robbie Williams' records, and we did it at Capitol Studios. Okay and it was a massive orchestra and like he wanted to sing with them at the same time so there was all this stuff I was in the middle of it and there's like producers and A&R people and it's you know it's kind of weird because I have a few people that do what I do and they're always a bit like I don't know if this career is going to sustain me and I don't know what else I could do and it's like if you if you can go and record a band in that situation with that much stress and with that much ego, you can kind of do a lot of other stuff. Yeah, it's
0: very <laughs> fits a lot of umbrellas. Yeah, you know. it really does. Oh my God. So speaking of which, um, to wrap things up a little bit, you're in Seattle now. Yeah. It's been about a couple of years. Do you do any more uh, recording stuff? I saw that you do a project with, you did uh, one of Minus the Bears records, at least yeah. before they called That's it That's what quits. brought me
1: to Seattle. Interesting. Then. Yeah. You knew the band before you moved here? Well, I was working with a, a friend of mine, a manager called Adam Katz, and when I I had a really great manager in the UK called Barbara Jeffries, who's kind of like a legend of the music industry. If you research her, she's done loads of stuff. I
0: think I've heard of her,
1: but... She I've ran heard. studios for Richard Branson and just loads of really cool stuff.
0: Maybe it's a different person thing. Yeah, Right, okay. do my own research, yeah. <laughs>
1: um, well, I moved managers, and... Kind of a thing that you do when you work with a producer manager is just give them lists all the time of people that you want to work with, like an ask for like a yeah like a vision board. <laughs> yeah, and weirdly, one of my fr- I was out in I just moved to Athens to do this uh, Luthier school, and when I was there, a friend of mine texted me, and he was like, "I just went to see Minus the Bear last night. You should make a record with them." and I was like that's an interesting idea they're pretty awesome so <laughs> I emailed Adam I was like do you know anyone that works with minus the band and he was like yeah I'm really good friends with their manager Chase Oh cool <laughs> so then they were trying to work with bigger producers than me and uh I was like just get me basically I'm always just in those scenarios I'm like get me in the room with the people and I'll do yeah if if I if I meet them I'm pretty sure we're going to find something to you know get along on yeah and I came up here and I did a rehearsal session with them and got on well with them and then we just made a record wow <laughs> but you know, sh- I really loved Seattle when I moved here so yeah it's a cool town it was kind of this time of year we started it actually yeah we started it like this- my birthday the other day Oh, happy birthday. Cheers. But it was like the week after my birthday we started it, so it was like this time of That's year. That's a great gift. Yeah, this is the weather that will hook people in. This is when I moved to Seattle. It definitely is like very sneaky. <sighs> it gets you to move here, and then yeah. after about two months, it's like, nah, it's not that awesome on the weather front. <laughs> it hasn't been as much. You know, the whole fucking global warming thing.
0: This is, it's, it's clear, but it's hot, and still no one has AC because we don't think forward to it. Yeah. And then it gets sticky, and again it's like it gets kind of okay, and then the winter hits, and you're like, "Why do I live here?" And then the front, the first April rolls around, and you're like, "Oh, that's yeah. right, I remember."
1: Yeah, I know this. This is, this is really amazing.
0: <laughs> and Columbia City is such a cool city too. Like it's, it's just yeah. it's a nice, quiet, like relatively quiet. I would say. I like you're it a lot. Of and a city. It's,
1: what I've always loved about living in cities, one of the things about I loved about living in LA is the diversity and the. You know the culture of it, and yeah. I feel like that's missing in a lot of Seattle. But here, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a lot here
0: specifically. Stuff. Oh my God, you go to South Lake Union; it's like it's
1: like parts of LA, like yeah. it's crazy. I see, I was just up there for a meeting before I came here, and uh, I was struck by how much South Lake Union is kind of reminding me of Manhattan. Yeah, it's just
0: changing. It's not diverse. It's like it's very superficial. Yeah, you know. I mean, that's, and you can place a lot of the blame on that on Amazon, you know, other parts, you know, I don't know. But Columbia City here, like working here, having worked here for two years, yeah, the diversity is, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's just cool. love it.
1: it's different. I really like living down here for sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, with that,
0: um, it is, we have reached the end of the podcast. I think we've had a fantastic conversation. Um, Me too. Yeah, I'm going to let you go so you can go back home to... Your house, house in Columbia City apartment? Uh,
1: I rent a room with a really nice couple just two Lovely. streets up from here. Oh. So this was very easy. Nice. I try to agree to doing easy things. Yeah, there we go. That's a good fulfilling life. Yeah. yeah. Just make it make it easy on yourself. Actually, I'll tell you what I did. My last music project, because you just asked me that, was a band called Helms Lee. Hel- Oh my god, I just, I listened to one of their albums uh,
0: last year when I was still living in Renton. Last year? Two years ago. Yeah. Yeah, they're great.
1: It's just, I think it comes they're out They're like really week.
0: accessible metal. Yeah.
1: Like, That's so cool. Ben Varelin, the yeah. guitar amp guy. When's that coming out, do you know? Is that already come out? This week or next week. The first single is already up. Okay, well I'm reviewing that album for sure. But that band is um, kick-ass. They're awesome, yeah. Really talented, all, all three of them. They just make a ridiculous noise.
0: Okay. Well, by the time this podcast comes out, that review will already be out. So y'all should definitely check out the Helmsley album if you've not heard it before. What's it called? I don't know. All right. I Don't Know It's coming out um, whenever, probably April something. Uh, this is the end of the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Make sure to check out the website uh You guys have a very nice evening wherever you are, or morning, I don't know, or afternoon, or if it's three o'clock in the morning and you can't get to sleep, well, I hope you do get to sleep. Take some melatonin. Uh, have a good day.
1: Bye bye.